This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, this is Madam Adams, Madam Cindy Adams. I have been in the New York Post since they founded it back in the century of 1700. So you better read me. And if you're not reading me, you can listen to me every Sunday on WABC at 1 o'clock. Right now, I am about to babble. And I want to tell you that I have been thinking about Valentine's Day, which cometh immediately. In Hollywood, it's called Kick and Yell. The hills are alive with the sound of lawyers. How about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, Brad and Angelina, take Kim and Kanye, Molly Cyrus's, Miley Cyrus's parents, Billy Ray and Tish, Tom Brady and Giselle, Emily Radjit Watserface and her now ex-husband about to be, Sebastian Bear McLeod. I think they was quitting because their names couldn't fit on stationery. Anyway, I'm going further. CVS's unemployed anchor, T.J. Holmes, undoing his wife number two, while Amy Roback jettisons her own number two. It's so nice, marriage. Valerie Bertinelli, finished after 10 years wed to Tom Vitale. Lisa Bonet and hubby Jason Moore, gone. After eight years marriage, Rosanna Arquette and Todd Morgan Sayonara. Perish the thought that you'd believe it, but even a few unreal housewives may have gone the route. Ditto Snoop Dogg, Tony Collette, Lil Wayne. I am pressing on. Billy Bob Thornton had six marriages. Larry King, who probably went to heaven with rice marks on his face, lived through eight. Busy Martin Scorsese zipped through five. Rosanna Arquette, four husbands. Back in the old days, there were the Gabors from Hungary. All gorgeous, all blonde, all the Gabors are gone. But some of their husbands are not. Magda had six. Eva, five. Mama Jolie was pretty busy herself. Jaja knocked off nine, including one last remainder who claimed he was a prince, a, a sort of a semi-prince. Listen, if he'd really been one, Mimi Megan would have nailed him already. I did Mama Jolie Gabor's autobiography. She said to me at the time, my daughter Ava Gabor's new bridal gown is gorgeous, but it's very low cut. On her neck, she's wearing a big cross. Me, I said, but Jolie, honey, you're Jewish. Jolie said, yes, but in the book you make us Catholics. Listen, I'm going onward. Their first date, Meg Ryan said of Dennis Quaid, he has wonderful arms. He looks so good in a t-shirt. He still has wonderful arms. He still looks good in a t-shirt, but they're divorced. Listen, you can't have everything. Enamored John Stamos married model Rebecca Roman in 98. Dis-enamored, he divorced her 
2005. What the hell? Seven years is not bad. In a deli, Nicolas Cage met Patricia Arquette, who at the time was inhaling liver and onions. They wed. Eventually, she finished the liver and onions and him. They divorced. Pamela Anderson. She met Tommy Lee 1994 New Year's Eve. That was when he licked her face. Five years later, she wiped off her face and him. We all know about Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio. They met on a blind date, and civilization knows what happened to them. Then there's Harrison Ford, who met his second wife when she interviewed him, and she is, he is since married to the third wife. That's Callista Flockhart. Clint Eastwood's first marriage was to his secretary, Margaret. He now has a current wife. Her name is Dina Ruiz. They met when she came to interview him. Paul McCartney. He peeled off numbers one, number two, and it's now number three. The name, Nancy Chevelle. And let us all, may we know, Anthony Weiner's immortal words, quote, Love between two people is a great experience. It's just important you get into bed with the right two people. Also, if you've seen all the videos and you've read all the reports, be it known that how Ben Affleck is handling his new wife may be what Biden is also doing to the whole country. Also, may civilization never forget the wash and wear bridal gowns of Elizabeth Taylor, Hilton Wilding, Todd Fisher, Burton Burton, Warner Fortensky. And one more also. Romance changes in parts of the country. You should know that drug testing is now so commonplace that Hollywood may consider urine sampling a sanctioned event. <laughs> Only Valentine's Day in the movie colony, kids. Only in the movie colony. I am now about to go to a station break. After that, I am about to come back with some very interesting people you will want to listen to. So stay on your station, and I will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am about to introduce a longtime friend. His name is David Patrick Columbia. He is the know-it-all of the social scene. And the first thing I want to know is, why do you happen to have three names when most of us have two? 
Well, actually, I have three names because I was given a middle name, Patrick. My, uh, Columbia is an Irish name, although a lot of people don't believe it. And, and uh, my father wanted a Patrick in there to, to confirm the Irishness. My mother hated the name, so I never used it. And actually, the truth of it is, uh, years and years ago, a woman named Dizia Restivo gave me a reading. She used, to, she used to write a column in Quest magazine, and she looked at my cards and she said, "Do you have a Do you have a middle name?" And I said, "I, I do, but I never use it." And she said, "What is it?" I said, "It's Patrick." She said, "Always use it." And actually, I did. I started using it after that. And the truth of it is, people remember that more than they remember David Columbia. I don't know why. Okay, okay, at least it's a decent answer. What the hell? I'm back. <laughs> I'm happy to have it. Where are you from? Well, I was born here in New York City. Uh, my father was a New Yorker, and uh, when I was about two years old, I moved up to a little town in Massachusetts called Westfield, and I grew up in Westfield. And when I got out of college, I came to New York. And, and when, you I, came, when you came to New York, you got rid of the Massachusetts accent, did you not? Actually, I came from Western Massachusetts, and they don't have an accent. I mean, they do have an accent, but it's not like the accent people think of it as a Massachusetts accent. It's like no, like the Kennedys, people like that. So I, do, I don't have a, I don't have an accent, but I think it's just the way it was. I was brought up. Okay, you are now about to be famous, even more famous, because you have a documentary coming out. When, where, what? The documentary is coming out this. Uh, on the 14th, on, and, and, I, and I cannot, it's on one of those channels that shows you documentaries, and I don't know which one it is. Uh, that's my, my, my fault. That's but. very nice. That's very elegant to have you on, and you don't even know where the hell your documentary is. I'm <laughs> thrilled. I'm thrilled. Okay. How did you start? How did you start in this business in the first place? Well, actually, uh, my father uh, was a New Yorker, as I said. He was born in 1900, and he actually, um, when he lived in New York as a young man, he was a chauffeur. And uh, when I was growing up in Massachusetts, my mother always used to ask him about the people that he drove. And, for example, his favorite, his favorite boss was a man named um, Black Jack Bouvier, the father of, yeah. of Jackie and, and Lee. And uh, actually, uh, I uh, what happened was I used to love these stories that he talk about the people who lived in a much different world from the world I was growing up in. And uh, so I. I wanted. To, I was always a writer from the time I was about 10 years old. I asked my mother for a Smith Corona portable typewriter for Christmas. I knew that was a lot to ask from her because she had to work, but she got it for me. And I, that's when I started writing down everything that was in my head. And I always wanted to write a social column in New York, but I didn't know how to get that how to do that and how to get it done. And at a certain point, I had moved out to Los Angeles where I went out to really commit myself to being a writer. And I wrote a book for Debbie Reynolds. I wrote her memoir. And I was hired to write a book for, um, for about, there they have it. I was hired to write a book for Bobby Short. And uh, I had a feeling that it wasn't going to work out very well um, because Bobby didn't really like to talk about anything other than yeah 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 so <laughs> what happened was actually it's, it's about in 1992 i came out here to new york i liked living in la i came out here to new york to to work on this book and i was very depressed about it because i had a feeling it wouldn't work and i got stopped for speeding in st louis and a cop 
It was really rough on where are you going? I told him I was going to New York. Where are you going to New York for? I told him. He said, who, 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 who are you going to write a book for? I told him I was going to write a book for a cab racing named Bobby Short. And his whole mood changed. He said, Bobby Short? Oh, you've got to drive carefully. So he let <laughs> me go. And as he let me go, I said to myself, if you, I, I, I felt good for a moment there. I said to myself, well, Let's say it doesn't work out with Bobby and you are stuck in New York. If you could do anything you wanted to write in New York, what would that be? And I said to myself, honestly, I would like to write a social column. And then I said to myself, well, nobody knows you. And that's so don't even think about it. But I was here for a couple of months and a friend of mine, Beth DeWoody, took me to a cocktail party at Chanel. I didn't know they had cocktail parties at Chanel. And uh, I met a little English lady named Heather Cohane, yeah. who owned a magazine called... Yeah. Yeah, And Heather uh, asked me to write a piece for her. She knew my byline, and I did. I wrote about 10 pieces, and one day she said to me, would you like to write a social column? And that was how it started. And uh, I started writing in Quest magazine. And then when we went online in 2000 with the New York Social Diary, it's been every day. And as you know, every day is a job. <laughs> so why are you so boring to talk to? I mean, I tell you, you never seem to have thing to say okay so tell me <laughs> tell me who doesn't like you everybody seems to like you i write so i know not everybody is going to like what i write what about you uh i have a few people who don't like me but i don't I don't pay any attention to that. Uh, usually they say terrible things, and um, that, that's the message, and it's okay. But one thing I learned early on in my life, because it was always a struggle from the time I was a childhood in many ways. We were poor, et cetera, et cetera. I made a point of always being nice. Um, and actually, I've learned in my now long life, I'm going to be 82 in July, I've learned that, I'm, learned that actually by being nice, people respond to you usually in a positive way. Yeah, but if you're always nice, you can also be always boring. Yeah, well, what I try to do is put in a few stories about things that aren't so boring, like people having affairs and cheating and lying and stealing. And Good, so tell me a few. Tell me a couple of stories. I don't care if you leave out some names, but tell me some stories or stuff that you haven't used, or stuff that you have used and got smacked for. I'm oh, flexible. Oh, yeah, well, uh, I'll tell you, I, um, you know, it's interesting because now I've found, I've been doing this for 20 years, and now I've found that actually uh, there is nothing very much that's a scandal anymore because everything that's going on that used to be a private story and a secret is now out there in front of you, and you get to see it on the street if you want. Um, so it's a little more difficult to come up with a, a story. So sometimes what I do do is I'll repeat a story that I told 20 years ago uh, because I realized 20 years later the reader's probably not reading it or it's a new reader. And uh, <laughs> I told a story about a very rich girl here in New York, a really rich girl, and she had lots of men in her What's life. her name? What's her name? Um, um, oh, God, I, I can't think of her name. <laughs> What are you talking about? You're not going to give me a story here? You're going to give me a blind story? 
<laughs> it's a blind blind all I've got. I mean, you're I'm, you're a loser. Tell me at least what is society? There isn't any more society. No, there's no society mean today? anymore. And actually, uh, and this documentary came because a woman said a woman who writes for us sometimes said to me they wanted to make a documentary about society. And I said to her, there is no society anymore. She said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm writing about social life in New York. But actually, what was society doesn't exist. It's just changed, and and it's that's the way it is. Now it's just a crowd of people. Well, what is well? What becomes the social scene? The aged people who are now schlepping to Florida, the people who used to live in the Hamptons but aren't anymore. What is it? Who is so-called society? The, uh, the people who are so-called society are the ones who are getting themselves photographed at parties, which which are often shown on my website and other col- social columns, and actually they're the social people. But as you know, and as I know, that society used to have a formula, and it existed with very real rules that don't exist anymore for people. So society is really gone, but social life is still very, very active, and it's mainly at the end of the camera lens. Yeah. Okay. Did you ever screw up with a story? I don't. I can't think of one that I did. Um, oh, it's impossible. I mean, it's impossible that you're so perfect that you never screw no, up no, with the story. No, I, no, no it's not, I don't. No, you can't don't, even remember anybody you ever said something bad about. I'm getting disgusted with you. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I don't say anything bad about people. I make that my point. I'm, I'm known as very nice because I am actually very nice in this. <laughs> that I'm not out to get anybody, and I actually don't want anybody to get me back, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I get your point. (laughs) Does anybody care about so-called society today? I understand your column is very good. We all read it. We all love you. I understand that. But who cares cares about society today? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's the older people. And they're still believing in it. And those are the ones. And actually, the the column is read all over the world. And, for example, in England, I have a lot of readers in England, and they still think of things as having society because they've got that royal family. They care about it. And they're still into it in a way. But they, they don't understand it's just really gone because the world has changed dramatically, as you know. So can you give me one story that you might like to share well um you really caught me here uh <laughs> I don't you know. write a column can't... can't you open your own magazine and tell me some story well uh usually the stories are about as I said, they're about usually about people having affairs or having marriage breakups. Um, I, I had a story not fairly recently about a marriage that was considered a very happy marriage. And actually, it turned out that uh, the wife wasn't really all that interested. And it turned out he actually wasn't interested. And she became suspicious. And then she became suspicious. She found out that actually he was having a relationship with someone else. And the someone else was a man. And actually, she found that out and she let him know and um, she accepted it and she uh, uh, had a she had a second personal private secretary and she needed to um, replace that secretary and she told the guy the the husband to bring this 
boyfriend in and be her secretary. And he did. And uh, they then got divorced and he went off with the secretary and then he died and left everything to the secretary. Nice. Okay. This being Valentine's Day, I presume you're not going to give us any name? No, I'm not. (laughs) Oh. You know, in my day, in the early day, I remember reporting about the Duchess of Windsor, and she used to go to these big parties in Palm Beach, and she would get paid by with jewelry from Cartier. Do you remember those things? I do, because I wow. used to report on them. I no. reported on them. That That's amazing. That's extraordinary. But you see, the day you're talking about, there was more of that that is going on than there is now. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Well, I, I, I went out to dinner last night at a new, a new restaurant, Faisano, I think it's called, uh, on, on uh, 49th Street. Okay. And uh, the, the, the woman I had dinner with was telling me about, uh, she's in the public relations business, and she was telling me about a client she has that's in the renting the jewelry business. And they're very, very successful, and they rent major jewels. And you can rent them for three or four days and things like that. That's why society isn't what we used to know. It's now everything is available if you've got the money and you just get it and you that's it. You mean like consignment shops where people are buying secondhand used clothes? Yeah, well, no, so these this are is... major pieces of jewels. And actually, they're very, very, they, they rent for like, I don't know, $300 a day, something like that. And they're really good. They're really good jewels. And um, that's what they are. And, and these, these women who can afford it are doing that rather than having more. Do, do, uh, do Secret Service people or police come with them? I don't know. <laughs> but that's very interesting. They do that at the Oscars and something. They hang something on your neck for an hour and a half, and then they schlep it off fast. But right. there are cops and things around. I didn't know that with today's thieves, you could take a ruby necklace that's worth $100,000 for 300 and wear it for an evening. Right. I don't well, know. Maybe they have secrets. I was surprised. She said it's very successful. and They do very, very well, and their clients are very, very wealthy clients. Okay. How long does it take you to write a Quest magazine article? It's a long piece. It, yeah, that'll take me a couple of days. How much in advance do you do it? Uh, well, I have deadlines all the time, as you do. And so my deadlines, they, they are, they're the ones that determine what I have to do and how long I have to do it. Now, in a quest piece, I, have, I may have several days. So what I do is I gather the information, and then actually two days before it's due, I start setting it down and making uh, a piece out of it. But you that- are a wonderful writer a wonderful friend, and you have given me no information, and I love you anyway. Oh, thank you so much, Paul. <laughs> you are always interesting no matter what. So thank you, really David. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on, honey. Thank okay, you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am about to speak to Eric Bogosian. Eric Bogosian has just done an evening with Eric, one night only. It's written by and starring Eric Bogosian. He's an author, an actor, a Shakespearean festival writer. He's the book writer. He's a novelist. He's everything. What is this evening with Eric? Well, I, you, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, I used to do these solo shows, and I, I just grabbed a bunch of monologues from those shows, and I did them so that I could do a benefit for this lovely theater, Chain Theater, uh, which is on 36th Street. And like a lot of the smaller theaters right now, uh, you know, the, the COVID, the pandemic really uh, put them through some of their paces and they need a little help. And uh, I like these people a lot. They're a, they're a new theater that's on, on the scene in New York. And uh, I just wanted to do something for them. So I said, guys, what do you think about it? I put a night together for you and we'll, uh, I'll get out and I'll do the old chestnuts. I haven't done this stuff. Since uh, for about ten years, I think you've been to all of them, Cindy. Back <laughs> yeah. in the in the day, I've gone back uh, to Shakespeare, honey. So, are you going to do this around the country and other cities as well? No, no. I mean, in the eighties and nineties, I did a lot of touring of this stuff, and uh, then around two thousand and one, I winded it down. And lately, I've just been doing stuff on. Uh, film and television work. Uh, currently I'm on a TV series called interview with the vampire on AMC. I play the interviewer and, uh, but some, uh, theaters are doing, uh, my old work. Uh, um, uh, let's see what, what is going on. Andre I don't know. Royo. You're everywhere. You're everywhere. Andre Royo is going to be doing some of my solo stuff in the spring uh, with, at the Minetta lane and, uh, that's drinking in America, which is a show I did back in 86 and another theater called the black box theater is doing one plus one at the Soho playhouse. So tell, tell it, me, it's fun. tell me you, you're everywhere. You've done something in every medium. You've also done a book or that, that turned into a, a movie that Oliver Stone made. It was called talk radio, which is what this is at this moment. What yeah. there? What is there about us to write a book about talk radio? Well, since the film came out, and since I did the play back in the, I guess that was the eighties, the late eighties. Uh, obviously, talk radios had a big influence on our pol- on our political system. I yeah. I, I wasn't yeah. thinking about that at the time. I was more just thinking about, and I and I think this applies to our whole political system today how people will go to any length to get success, even if they have to say nasty things on the air or if they, if they have to, in the, in the case of the Rush Limbaugh, who I think was a war criminal, incite a war and uh, cheerlead a war, uh, you know, it's like, this gets my numbers up, great, I'll do it. And, and uh, this is sort of the nature of our mass media today is, you know, or, or even the politics, do or say whatever it is you need to do or say to get, you know, people to start following you around, even when it doesn't even make any sense what you're saying. Eric, you have so many awards. You are famous in a great many areas. Can you remember your very first acting gig, 
your tryout when you when you when you made an audition? Well, I wasn't a very good auditioner when I started out, so I I kind of I have to say it was it was pretty dismal. But the <laughs> first time that I had an audition that actually worked in my favor was for Miami Vice in 1984, and um, I was I was elated. I got something like six or seven lines, and they flew me down to Miami, and I was. I was in heaven that I had actually landed a job. So were you any good at what you did on your first shot? <laughs> I don't know. I think it took a while. I was, I was always very spirited on stage. And then I was told that when you do film and TV, uh, you should take it down a notch. I think that was a big mistake. And then I eventually learned I just have to do what I do and uh and uh, let the chips fall as they may and that and by the time i did talk radio in 88 with oliver stone uh i was I, I had found my my pace and my style of you know just do the same thing on film that i do on stage um more recently i've been fortunate to be on some of the very interesting tv shows like billions or succession I, I got to do this movie with adam sandler that was so much fun uncut gems and You've now interview with You've the vampire how, yeah, how, did you, done... how did you get into acting to begin with how where in school yeah i grew up in a kind of a working class town up outside of boston woburn massachusetts and um I had never been to a play or anything. I didn't know anything about that stuff, but our <laughs> English teacher in the 10th grade, he said, uh, today we're going to do a play. We're going to do Romeo and Juliet. And I played Capulet, Juliet's dad. And I just loved it right away. And uh, so I, the very first thing I ever did was Shakespeare. And I said, how do I get to do some more of this stuff? I said, well, there's a, there's a theater club in our school. And I was really no good at anything. I was no good at sports or anything. And I went and I started doing the theater club. We had a wonderful teacher named Dot McCausland, and she was so supportive. I mean, it says a lot about teachers, I think, that they can change your life. And, and she encouraged us, and she encouraged me, and, and I fell in love with acting. I just I, I can't think of anything I love more than, than doing it other than my, my wife and my kids and my can, grandkids. Can you tell me if a story is told best on television or on movies? or on stage. They all take different lifestyles. I just don't know where an, a writer can take can tell best. Well, I, I know one thing, and a lot of people in the business know this, is that people who write for the stage, which is basically usually dialogue, are usually very good at writing television. And you see a lot of people moving from stage to TV shows. In fact, uh, our showrunner on the on the interview with the vampire, Roland Jones, uh, it was a, a very successful playwright, and then he moved to TV. And you see that a lot of the time because if you've got those chops, you can you can write TV. What about how how does it work if you if you have written a novel that is adop adapted into a movie, then it gets into the hands of the director or the producer, or a screenwriter. Sometimes you would lose your mojo, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it get taken over by the other people in the crafts? 
all the time. I well, think. Uh, how does it work? Those, I don't know how it works. Well, I mean, as soon as you move from the single person writing the the book or writing the play to the committee, which is the the movie production company and the the director and everybody's got something to say, then you're making something by committee. And then I don't think that's it's usually not as good um, unless you're lucky enough to have Tony Kushner working with you or somebody like that. Um, one of the worst examples is like Tennessee Williams. He did, he had cat on a hot tin roof and they yeah. got somebody else to write the, the screenplay. And it, it wasn't even his play. It wasn't even the spirit of the play was lost. And yet that's what most people you know, if they've ever seen the movie of it, then they know that they say, oh, there's cat on the hunting. I saw it. It was in a movie. It's like, you didn't see it. You don't see it till you see the play. So, um, yeah, sure. A lot gets lost in translation. Um, but every once in a while, a book, uh, can inspire a movie that's even better than the book. I mean, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I mean, filmmaking is filmmaking and that, you know, I don't, I don't ever claim to know anything about how to make a movie. I'm not a, I'm not a, I mean, I was fortunate that talk radio worked out, but I got to work with Oliver and Oliver, you know, he brought all of his filmmaking chops to this rather modest play. We had done at the public theater back when Joe Papp used to run the, the public. Okay. Theater so now tell me ago. about the stage. Tell me about what happens when some stupid person takes out a phone, a cell phone or something. Or <laughs> how does it react with somebody on stage? I would like to kill them, but you tell me. Well, in as... my case, in my case, when I was doing the solo shows, which I did for 20 years, I did six runs off Broadway. Um, I would I'd get right off the stage. I'd jump off the stage and I'd take the phone away from They didn't really have phones. You can do that? Phone, you can actually do that? I used to interrupt the shows all the time. I would, I, one time there was an usher bringing somebody down with their flashlight and I said, turn the flashlight off. I said it from the stage and they didn't do it. So I jumped off the stage. I took the flashlight away from them and I threw it into the wing. It was fun. What did <laughs> the audience do? Did that's they applaud? Different. <laughs> that's different. Yeah. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to say anything or do anything. I hate it. I was at a play just two nights ago and it was a very dramatic moment and uh, somebody's phone starts going. It seems like the phones have a, have an innate sense of when, yeah. when to ring. And, and you know this, you know, Cindy, I just want to say to you, I, I think because I see you at every opening that I go to and, and often I go to opening nights, you probably have seen more theater than anybody in New York. Oh, honey, I saw Shakespeare's original things when he was there in person. (laughs) Nothing has ever happened before me. I'm being serious here. I think you've seen more. You should be a theater critic because you've seen more theater than anybody. You know. Do you You know that? to compare it to. Listen, honey, do you realize that you and I, not the same year, but you and I share the same birth date? I didn't know that. No. Yes, April April 24th. 24th. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. What do you mean you didn't know that? I sent word to you that about that a couple of years ago and you never responded to me. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I don't even, I I don't even know where my emails and stuff go half the time, but well, that's, you know, that's a very special day. You know that for Armenians, because that's the day that we recognize the Armenian genocide. And I didn't know that uh, for years in, in my own life. And I am Armenian and my grandparents are all from Turkey. 
And, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, it was like having a mark on me. They're saying, you know, you have some destiny. So I did end up writing a book about Armenian genocide. I wrote a book about the uh, Operation Nemesis, who were the guys who, this is a nonfiction book, who the, the men who, who uh, went and avenged the Armenian genocide. It's a true story. And they, they were assassins. They killed all the leaders of the Armenian genocide, the Turks. And, um, you know, it's out there in a book. You can get it on, the all of this happened on my online. birthday. <laughs> yes. And, and Shakespeare's in there somewhere too. And Shirley MacLaine is in there somewhere too. Well, surely so, I knew, but the Shakespeare, I didn't know in person. I think he's and, the day before or something. A week before. And I tried <laughs> to get this information to you and you either had a person, a secretary, an assistant, somebody who never gave you the information. I was so excited to be sharing with you. You never oh. responded, so I'm mad at you. Oh, is that why we're doing this interview? Yeah. So you can tell me that you're mad at me? That's the only reason. Okay. Oh, good. I am about good. to... Well, tell me one thing more. The pandemic. <laughs> what did you do during it? I grew a lot of tomatoes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I did. And uh, during this period of the pandemic... Uh, I started working on a memoir, which I have not finished, which is driving me crazy. And I was lucky enough to become a grandfather. So I have a, I have a grandson and, uh, that is a mind blower. So. Okay. Now on April 24th, if I am forced and I will pay, shall we have dinner together? (laughs) Yes, but it's going to have to be in Prague. Can you come to Prague? Just for I'm dinner? Be, no, forget yeah, it. Uh, forget it. I'm okay, shooting, that took I'm care of that. With a vampire in Prague, I want to so. thank you for a wonderful interview and no possibility of buying me dinner. Anyway, <laughs> I loved <laughs> I loved having you. Thank you. Thank Eric. you, Cindy. Thanks, honey. I will see you at the next Broadway oh. opening. Okay, I look forward to it. Bye. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Okay, I am back again. And I would like to just say a few words about someone who was a friend of mine. Bert Backrack. We lost him this week. I not only knew Bert Backrack forever, I knew his parents, Bert and Irma. I remember Bert Backrack bringing his mom, Irma, a video of his new home in Bel Air. She'd not seen it. I remember him visiting her in the hospital in 1984. I was there. For him bringing his adopted blonde, blue-eyed baby, Christopher, to Mom and Dad's East 57th Street building. They had a small apartment. I remember him coming to dinner in their apartment and bringing the infant for us all to see. 
I remember Burt Backrack before he was a big hotshot award winner. It seems to me I have always known Bert. I was there like when he won at Santa Anita. I was there like when he did his first Broadway musical after Promises, Promises. Here's something not known by a lot of people. His father was named Bert, but the spelling was B-E-R-T. Father Bert was a syndicated columnist for 18 years, a big-time party giver, and a perennial first-nighter. He would go anywhere at any time. The son, the famous Bert Backrack, when he finally got famous and rich, he gifted his parents with a prepaid limo service so they could go out, and by this time they were getting a bit aged. This kid, they called Haps, H-A-P-S. But I once asked the father, why christen your son Bert with the same name, but with a different spelling? His is B-U-R-T. Yours is B-E-R-T. His father told me, when I was a kid, people always called me Bertram. I hated it. I had to make sure my son won't have the same problem. Well, I guess he won't have it anymore. I'm going to go on and tell you some other things. My mouth is just itching to talk, and so I'm just going to lay on you a few things. I'm going to talk to you about my city. I'm a New Yorker, born here, bred here, grew up here educated here, live here. My dogs are even Yorkies. Back when phones had operators and women wore underwear and they still bought things called brassiers, 86th Street was a big hotshot avenue. It was then called Yorkville or Germantown. It had European restaurants, entertainment, theaters, the country's oldest art, motion picture palace. If you're young, you won't remember that. If you're a little older, you will remember it was a main entertainment thoroughfare, not anymore. Now, it's cheerless buildings, elderly, some new, but the historic casino theater, which you won't remember, has been demolished. Why? To put up another mid-level type building, mid-apartment cost. We have there the Yorkshire Towers, the Ventura, the Harper, the Aylin, the Hayworth, the Lucinda, the Arlo Park. We also have there 1931's landmarked Papaya King. It's old, it's older, it's still there. Hey, I remember when residents were once Marilyn, Brando, Matt Damon, Zero Mostel, Renee Fleming, Isaac Beshevis Singer. The street has now lost its mojo. However, it's going to come back. Reducing 86th Street is now getting more talk than fixing up Rikers. Our town, a columnist named Ar Arlene Kayat, 
says that an Asian market is coming and plans include a performing arts venue, places to please young people, redo the Met into a cultural center, if you can believe it, up the whole corridor and remember what it once was. I can smell the Wiener Schnitzel now. Listen, one other thing. I got to talk. I'm in the mood. Listen, enough with the awards. I'm sick of the awards. We got the Oscars, the Tonys, the Sags, the Grammys, the Emmys, Golden Globes, Golden Peacocks, Silver Peacocks, BAFTAs, OBs, DGAs, Palm Doors, Critics' Choices, Olympics, CODAs, Gotham's. I'm not finished. People's Choice Awards, Junos, Peabody's, Nobels, Best Dressed, Indie Spirits, whatever they do that stupid thing in Cannes, MTV Video Awards, Film Independent Somethings, National Board of Review, Indie Spirits. What is next? Cheapest Plumber? Shortest Exterminator? Lousiest Landlord? Definitely Dumbest President? Or me? greatest reporter <laughs> thank you for listening to me it is time for them to take me off but i will be back to see you at the same time this is cindy adams saying i love you thank you for listening to me bye ohio ready for some quick mental health facts let's go nearly two million ohioans live with a mental health condition in the u.s more than 50 percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.